Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Jinto called Life Under Quarantine. My name is Cornelius McGrath and I am your host. In this series, I will be talking to the everyday entrepreneurs, students, athletes, artists, bartenders, chefs, reporters, teachers and hospital workers about how they are finding meaning, clarity and opportunity in a time where there seems to be none. My guests today are Heather McGowan and Chris Shipley. Heather and Chris are co-authors of a new book called The Adaptation Advantage, published by Wiley. But more importantly, they are two people I've admired and looked up to for nearly six years. It's hard to sum up the brilliance of Heather and Chris in a 60 second introduction. Their ability to talk in depth and connect the dots between such a vast array of subjects is really second to none. Our conversation today touches on work, identity, education, creativity, collaboration, and society. And Heather and Chris's central philosophy around the importance of adaptation in a world where the only constant is change is a message I believe everybody can benefit from during this time of uncertainty and rapid technological evolution. If you're looking for the silver bullet on how to live a life that is authentic to you in a world that is changing by the second, Chris and Heather might just be the folks you've been looking for all along. Heather and Chris, welcome to Life Under Quarantine. Thank you very much for having us. It's nice to be quarantined with you virtually. Today. It is, it is. So what, what number of Zoom calls have you had in the last two weeks? I don't, I've lost count. I don't know about you, Heather. Well, because you're working for a startup, so you probably have them all day long. Yes. I have, you know, uh, see, I'm doing a webinar on Monday. I did one yesterday. Um, I'm doing like two or three a week in some form or fashion. And then um, there's the, you know, virtual karaoke party tonight. There was our discussion group last night. So, you know, there's the whole social side of it as well. Yeah, but yeah. I've, I've got um, Zoom cocktails lined up for the next three weeks. Every, every night at 530, you can jump on and join us. That's awesome. Well, it's great to see you two. Um, I'm so excited for you both uh, and the new book you have coming out. I've been a long, 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 long time fan. And uh, I can't wait to see what it does. But as we were kind of talking about in the pre-roll, Corona hasn't necessarily uh, been kind um, to the marketing plan. Obviously, Heather, the speaking engagements that you had lined up. So I guess I wanted to begin with your headspace today. Is it optimistic? Is it pessimistic? Where do you guys find yourselves? Uh, I'm a short-term pessimist, long-term optimist. We've got uh, a world of hurt that we're going through and it's gonna be worse in the next few weeks from a strain on our healthcare system, loss of lives, loss of lives in isolation, people in isolation, economic hardship, all that stuff we know about. In the long term, I'm, I see this as the third moral test of our lives. Uh, in the last 50 years, first it was climate change. Our knowledge about climate change is really 50 years old in terms of man-made activity income inequality, the Gini coefficient, which is a measure, a statistical measure of income inequality, peaked in the late 1920s, early 1930s, right before the Great Depression, declined to the 70s, and it has skyrocketed since. Under every administration, it's not a Republican or Democrat thing. And so now we're at this highest level of income inequality that we've had in 50 years. At the same time, the last five years with a five hottest on the planet. And now this third test presents itself with this global pandemic. And we're doing something really interesting this time. There was a poll in USA Today that 43% of those polled believe we should continue to stop the economy and shelter in place because it's more important to protect people, in particularly our most vulnerable and our elderly, than it is to be just running our economy mindless of them. So we're putting humans before profit for the first time. And in that process, what's happening, I think, is those three moral tests converge. So if we start issuing $1,200 checks to 80% of the economy, that's kind of income, uh, universal basic income. If we're all working from home and not flying and not driving, well, suddenly we're starting to heal the planet. Um, if we're saying stimulus bailouts can go to workers but not to stock buybacks, we're suddenly shifting what we value. And I think it's really interesting long term 
how we come out of that. And one other thing I think is the only thing growing faster than the virus is a global sense of empathy. People are caring more for each other, asking more about each other, companies having employees voluntarily cutting their pay so that other people won't get their job eliminated. It's really profound, I think, what's happening. So long-term, I'm really optimistic. Short-term, we've got to get through this. Yeah, I think that that's right. And, and you know, I was counseling a group of entrepreneurs last night who were talking about and using phrases like, well, when we return to normal and whether we, we get back to normal. And, and my counsel to them was, we are not going back to normal if normal is what life looked like in January or February. Mm. It's, I think, as, as Heather's pointing out, we're feeling profound change, you know, recognizing we can do things like provide universal health care that we didn't think we could do because in this moment we have to do it. We can provide basic income because in this moment we have to do it. And what was a radical socialist idea, um, believe many thought, you know, just a couple of months ago is now absolutely a, a must do. So, you know, we've demonstrated what we're capable of doing and, you know, recognizing that we are a deeply connected planet, that someone, you know, quite literally sneezes in, in China and everyone gets sick around the world. And it's not to say that the virus is the, um, you know, the point of origin of the virus, but rather, you know, our, our supply chains inter interconnected, our communications, our, our you know, every part of our lives. And I don't think that's deniable anymore. So a lot of things that we were able to kind of, uh, you know, drive by looking in the rearview mirror of the way things used to be, the normal that used to be, um, are just, I think, dashed now. And we get maybe a clean slate to start imagining a different and better future, um, future of work, future of, of life and relationships and mm -hmm. all sorts of things. So, um, and I'm, I, it's tough right now. It's difficult to um, miss a paycheck or not be able to, to be with someone who is sick and needs comfort. Yeah. Um, it's difficult you know, in so many ways in our daily life, but in the long term, I think we come out of this a better people. Cornelius, you were just asking us how we were doing and expecting us to say fine, and we burped up a thesis, thesis for you. <laughs> but that's how well, that's your magic. <laughs> that's your magic. Um, one of the other things I, I think is that we are starting to understand what we're capable of, and that's pretty rapid adaptation. And if you look at, I've worked a lot with universities where presidents and provosts have told me those faculty will never teach online. They're teaching online now, and they're succeeding at it. Um, you know, people I know who are leaders in companies who say, you know, I don't really trust when people work from home. Well, they're trusting now. So we have this sort of collective moment of interdependence and vulnerability that I think is making us a lot stronger. The speed at which we're seeing global scientific collaboration and a search for a virus and search for therapeutics and ramping up testing and repositioning supply chains. I mean, I'm in uh, Boston right now. It's where I live most of the time or part of the time. And Robert Kraft sent the Patriots plane to China to pick up uh, masks for hospitals in Boston because federal government wasn't coming through and they negotiated this complicated thing, which included like flying through certain airspaces to get there on time. And the speed in which we're adapting everything from the way companies are repositioning their product lines to mm. make hand sanitizer and personal protective equipment and ventilators to the way companies are saying, okay, what are we good at and what's the need right now? Like I have a good friend who's the CEO of a trade show company. They make large scale trade show booths, multi-million dollar things. Well, those have gone away. So what do they do? We can make rapid testing centers. We can make face shields. We can make, you know, what are the things we could do? with our capabilities and our kind of core yeah. uh, capacity. And people are doing it all over the place. And it's really profoundly, to me, inspiring. Right. So I've had about 20 conversations over the last two weeks on, you know, on the podcast and probably, I said, just as many offline. <clears throat> and there's been a couple key themes that I'd like to get your perspective on. Picking up on your point, Heather and Chris, there, of what can we do? The idea of the controllables. Very stoic philosophy. 
um, that's the only thing we can focus on. Number two is language that's used in a crisis. Uh, my professor, Steve Reifenberg, who teaches at Notre Dame, came on and talked about how he thinks the idea of social distancing is actually kind of dangerous. What we're going for here is physical distancing. Right. And that social distancing is a misnomer. It's been written about, as you've seen. And then it can lead to isolation. And then the third is what happens when people are devoid of the institutions that give them meaning? Do they default into loneliness or do they default into solitude? And what do they begin to recognize about their own selves that maybe they could never do so before because of the noise that existed? I'm interested how you see those three threads, where you've seen them maybe play out in your lives, the lives of loved ones, mentees, mentors, and really just as it pertains to your book and your whole thesis ever since I've known the two of you, that is continue to reskill, continue to adapt, continue to learn. That is your currency. Is this not the perfect time for a message like that? Yeah, sure is. I'll take the first one. I don't know, Chris, if you have thoughts on the second one. Um, I've, I've heard a lot about the idea that we should be saying physical distancing and not social distancing. Um, one of the things that I, I think Chris and I talked about it, putting it in that Forbes article, but I think we ended up pulling it out, was is this the moment where social media fulfills its promise? You know, is this the moment, since we're using these digital platforms to connect like we're on Zoom right now, mm. is this the moment when Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and whatever your Snapchat, whatever your preference is, is the thing that rather than managing your impression in the world, you start managing your impact and start building your connections? I, I'm hopeful about that. I've seen some shifting. There's still some blame stuff going on around Facebook, but I'm seeing more people reach out to each other in empathy across social media. So I see more social cohesion. We like had, as I think David Brooks said on Brooks and Shields last week or the week before, we had to be ripped apart to pull back together. Mm -hmm. I think I see some of that happening. Yeah, you know, ironically, I'm finding that I'm more connected than less. You started this conversation asking us how many Zoom uh, conversations we've been on. And, you know, part of that is the function of, of doing work, but I am, more engaged and more connected with the remote team that I've been remote with for two years, more connected now than I have been in the past. And, you know, there's no particular reason for it, I think, except that we all are recognizing that business as usual isn't usual anymore and we need mm -hmm. to stay tight, you know, more tightly in contact. I have been um, on Zoom conversations with people who, you know, have never thought that they would use their computer to have a, a face-to-face -face conversation with someone that um, people that I might see once a year I'm seeing once a week um, so I, I think that we're fine our whether we call it social distancing or social the potential for social isolation has actually caused us to reach out to be far more connected um, and you know it's is it the same as um, you know so sidling up beside someone and giving them mm. a hug and being having that physical contact certainly it's different but i think it provides a lot of the same emotional nourishment that we you know just because we have thought about people but we just didn't get around to writing or texting or calling um now we we actually are pushed to that next you know make the connection moment and i think that that's you know we're recognizing that we don't have to be distanced even when we're apart so I think that that is a, a true thing. You know, the other thing, and I think you're right when you say language matters, um, and I would add that trust matters even more. And I think that's a place where we are going to go through a, um, a whole process of reckoning. Um, and, and, and I think if we, we look at where we are in this country as, um, as politically divided as we have been for so long, mm. I'm not going to project that we heal all rifts and suddenly in a giant wave of patriotism, we all uh, agree on everything. But I think that we're going to see that we're going to see truth and, and trust put up in a mirror with one another, that things that have been said uh, prove to be untrue and damaging, um, that um, we do have to depend on media to deliver a message in a time of, of crisis. and undercutting the authority and the trust in media doesn't help. Um, we have to, um, 
you know, again, you said it depend on our institutions, but when our institutions have, have undermined our ability to connect and to have faith in uh, you know, other institutions, right? we're, we're fully into, um, you know, I support my religious community, but they've undermined my faith in my um, uh, media community for some reason. Well, I need both of those things right now mm. right? Uh, for different reasons. And so we've got it, this warring that happens between um, leadership of one form or another to, um, you know, sort of take, whether it's a power grab or a, you know, a desire to have uh, the greatest position in leadership has created this sense of what well, I don't know who to trust. And now I think we're going to start to see who we can trust based on what the outcomes that are actually occurring. You know, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here a little bit, but I'm looking at maps this morning about um, viral spread and mobility based on where governments have or have not implemented um, sanctuary in place or stay-at-home orders. And you see on, on those maps a correlation with virus viral spread. So when you have a government saying, you know, really, it's not such a big deal, go out there, enjoy restaurants, go to the market, you're fine. And then that community gets really sick. Mm. Again, that's a mirror. You told me this, I did what you said, bad things happen. Now I know that maybe the other people who said something different are more trustworthy than you. Again, thinking out loud, but I think this gives us an opportunity to start to filter where we're, where we're giving and getting information and how we consume it and who we trust in these moments because the outcomes will be much more evident. You know, in the past, I could trust a politician or distrust a politician and the immediate effects weren't as well felt. And now, you know, it's right on top of us. Well, so. now your life depends on it. So we're a little more focused. Right. You know, the, the whole idea of locking down one part of the country, but not locking down an adjacent part of the country or rather any part of the country and allowing people to travel freely is as I saw on some social media thing this morning, the equivalent is equivalent to saying this is the peeing section of the swimming pool and the non-peeing section of the swimming pool. I mean, it's it, we're interdependent here. We're all swimming right. in the same water, right? Or urine, as it, as it, the case may be. Um, I think one of the other questions you were asking about in your three part there, Cornelius, was how do we uh, connect when we're not part of our institutions anymore? And that mm. could be. I'm not going to school anymore. I'm not going to an office anymore. I can't go to my church anymore. And one of the things um, that Chris and I tracked in the book and in the, in the section on identity is that we're not only at the lowest level of trust since Pew's been tracking it, we're also at the lowest level of church membership and trust in government. So we've had this crisis of trust and belonging that this might be a moment to, to remedy that, that we might be by nature of the fact that if we follow certain advice we live and other advice we die, that we suddenly find out that truth matters. And then we rebuild our institutions on trust mm. and creating a, a, a sense of belonging. I think there are other ways to create senses of belonging, but I think that is a pretty mission critical one. Mm. Now, it's not necessary, it's not a bad thing for an institution to give you meaning. I think people are just realizing yeah. how fragile though that can be. And it's, yeah. it's not a bad thing to want to go and have dinner with somebody and give right. them a hug or give them a kiss or shake their hand. But again, it's almost like that fragile film has been ripped away. And there is that immediate moment of, you know, week one of quarantine where you're like, well, what the hell am I supposed to do now? Yeah, I know. I find myself, since we're binge watching TV shows, that every time I see somebody go up and shake someone's hand or hug them, I'm like, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. Right. I've had like the same we're moment. We're already being conditioned to not accept it in... Our fiction. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I took the dog for a walk last night and you know, my neighborhood is a pretty active neighborhood and it was a little eerie because people aren't out as much and, um, you know, it's kind of, of odd. But then you see things like, um, I've heard of, about people who are putting teddy bears in the windows of their homes as a way for kids when they're out for their walk to, to be on a scavenger hunt to find the teddy bears. Cool. And you, you see a teddy bear, or people are talking about doing these virtual Easter egg hunts, same kind of thing, mm. to give a sense of community. And it's just this 
funny little token, but walking by a house that had a teddy bear in the window, I thought they're, they're thinking with some empathy toward their neighborhood. Yeah. Further down the block, uh, another dog walker uh, is approaching and, and we cross the street so that we maintain our distance. Yeah. And, and yet it's, hi, how are you? you know, there's a, a moment of, of acknowledgement that, you know, a few weeks ago would have just been, I'm going to keep my dog away from your dog so they're not, uh, you know, they don't get in a fight and we can go peacefully on our way. And now it's this sense of connecting. Yeah. Um, I was at a, a supermarket um, picking up some groceries for, for some friends and, you know, everyone's minding the six foot markers on the sidewalk, waiting their turn to go in. And no one's thinking, you know, damn it, I got to get in here and get out of here quickly because I've got another errand to run. There's a patience that people have have now. And I think we're finding different ways to, I don't know if it's, it's not institutional in the same way, but I think we're finding that our institution really is our common connectedness as community and, and humanity. And, and when we can't physically connect, we're finding ways to do that emotionally, even at distance, whether it's nodding to somebody that you're, you see as you're walking down the street or or appreciating that somebody's keeping physical distance when you're in the supermarket or finding a teddy bear in a window, there's a, a level of, of respect and, and mutual care in that distance as well. So it's a, it's a different opportunity to find new ways to find common community that when in the past would be we all gather into a place and we all um, um, you know, we hug each other and shake hands, that's not you know, that's obviously what we can't do now. So we found these other alternatives that are oddly just as bonding, even though they're very much at a distance. Right. What I find funny is that with both of you, we only had a virtual digital relationship, at least for the genesis of many years. I finally got to meet you both in the last two years, one in the San Francisco airport, got the pleasure of having lunch and doing a podcast with Heather. And so I was reflecting on my own lived experience of nothing has immediately changed for me yet. I work almost exclusively from home. I have everything I need. The only thing I've lost is going to the gym and or grabbing a, a cocktail at my favorite you know, dinner spot or lounge. And I think a lot of people that I've spoken to who maybe were used to going to an office every day, be it for three years or 30 years, came back and didn't know how to repurpose their space. And space is physical, but it was also the, the headspace they were in. As to digital nomads, for lack of a better term, who are always traveling, always in a way more exciting country or doing something way more cool than I am, what's your message to those people that are maybe coming into their home, having to figure out how to balance kids, dog, job? How can they continue to create a space that allows them to perform at a really high level, but is also like natural and human to them? You point out something really interesting, which is I, I've worked for, from this same space for 20 years um, and yet somehow it feels different now that I have to work from this space and I'm not <laughs> traveling as much still I think that the the thing to that gets you past the you know that mental model that you're talking about is wrecking is let's assume it's not temporary if this is temporary then I try to be productive with the laptop on my lap while also binge watching Netflix and telling my kids to do their, you know, download their homework. If it's temporary, um, my laptop's on the kitchen counter and I'm ergonomically incorrectly slumped over it, trying to um, keep lunch crumbs off the keyboard while doing uh, my email. If it's temporary, I'm not creating a space to be creative and to work in. And so, I think that if we just take a you know a very sh short stop to reset and think, well, this is this is where my environment. What's my environment going to be that gives me the energy and the the creativity, and the productivity to do my best work permanently? And that you know we hope that the situation doesn't go on for years and years. It will likely go on for at least another couple of months. I'm guessing. Um, so behave as if, it, if it's, if it's you or you're going to work in your new place and really create for yourself an environment that supports that. And I think that will give you the psychological freedom 
to detach from the other dis distractions, including the distraction of you know, this metal model of, of social distancing, um, you know, that we're in crisis, right? I'm, when I come here to go to work, I'm not working in a crisis, I'm working on my current project. And I think it's just a, it's a mind shift that's important hmm. um, if we're gonna be productive and, and keep, keep our, ourselves deeply engaged with the kinds of things that give us purpose. Heather, how about you? I mean, you, I don't know how many countries you go to on a monthly basis, but does it feel weird not to be traveling? Is there a part of your creativity that is adjusted to, to life on the road? And, and how are you working through this? Well, this is how I normally operate. Whether I'm in Boston or New York, I always have a suitcase that's mostly packed. So in 15 minutes, I can walk out the door and get on the plane. And I just put my suitcases away and I had to acknowledge and I keep them in like little luggage stands like you do in a hotel. So I'm like always ready to go. I had to put that stuff away and say, I'm, I'm here for, I don't know how long. Yeah. Um, and so the talks that I have that are continuing are virtual and I've had to adapt to like, how do I keep high levels of engagement mm. with, you know, people I can't be three feet from or five feet from or six feet from. Um, and so I have to adapt in a pretty profound way and learn and sort of set up a, I have a studio. This is one of my studio spaces for recording. Um, mm. uh, cause I've always done podcasts. So I've always had that kind of thing, but now yeah. that this is my primary vehicle, I've had to adapt. But I think for the most part, I don't have a real regular job. <laughs> so I don't have that sort of, I don't have an office anymore to go to, but I have right. now I'm in one space a lot. And I find myself, as we were talking about in the, at the top of the show, um, reaching out to people I haven't talked to in a really long time um, because I want to know that they're okay. I feel like I'm more worried about other people than I've ever been in my life. You know, folks who are um, isolating at home for one reason or another, they're single, uh, they have an elderly parent they're worried about, my own parents I'm worried about, you know, I mm. feel myself spending more of my time, more of my day connecting with people to make sure they're okay than anything else. That's okay. That's what I'm doing right now. Right. So let's let's talk about the book. Um, okay. the, I'm so excited. I, I can't wait to read it. Um, I was on the the phone with Brad Grossman this morning, who said he loved it. Um, I have no doubt that it's going to be fantastic. But take me through the genesis of where this book began, and maybe you could share with everybody how you two met, because I think it's just the most fascinating story. And and ultimately, you live on opposite sides of the country, so. Not only have you created something of immense value that's very difficult to do, but I'm assuming you've done it in in the same domain that now everyone is now adjusting. So I think it's a really cool opportunity to kind of dive into that. Chris and I met in um, Sydney. I think it was in Sydney, in Australia. We were both speaking at the Amplify conference put on by AMP. Annalie Killian of Sparks and Honey brought us together. And we just started talking at that event. And even though we both flew to Australia at the time, I think we were living about four or five miles apart because at the time Chris was working for MIT in Cambridge and I was living in Newton. I mean, we're next door neighbors. Uh, and so when we came back from that, I said, hey, I've been working on a book and Chris is an excellent writer. I said, do you wanna just jump into it with me and see what happens? And it was a bit longer of a timeline than I think either one of us expected. We started in 2015. Wow. Um, went through many iterations. We wrote a lot of articles together. Most of what, we, what I've written is what we've written. Um, and we got a lot of rejections, obviously. Um, that happens to a lot of people. Uh, they didn't believe we had a platform. They didn't believe people wanted to change. They thought it was too complicated. All sorts, every reason in the world. Mm. But Wiley early on said, um, that's our publisher, said to us, this is a really important book and it should be published. And that was just based on what we did probably two, two, two or three years ago. It was like 2016 or 17, yeah. Yeah, and they said, but you don't have a platform. And so I said, Roger that. And I just started focusing on speaking. So I spent about two years nonstop speaking, building a platform, building up our following. We wrote more. And then I went back to him and said, okay, how about now? And they said, sure. And that's sort of how we started. And then from the time I think we got the contract, Chris, I think I was in the hospital when we signed the contract. We did it in months, a handful of months. Yeah, we, we final, finalized our agreement with, with the publisher in June and, and we had the full book 
to them by the end of October and, uh, wow. and went through all the, the production process in a couple of quick months. So we, we've gone, we went from contract to uh, book in distribution in 10 months time, under 10 months time. Now that's pretty quick, right? Yeah, very quick. No, it, it helped to have spent five years writing together and, and thinking together and yeah. accepting ideas and rejecting ideas. So, you know, it, although there's a, a bit of a starting from scratch element to it, the reality is we, um, we had, had been revving the engines for a long time. Yeah, we had a lot of thought pillars to sort through. And it was a matter of just sort of focusing on how do we chunk this in a way that people will follow, digest, understand, and make meaning. Um, we knew each other and we knew how to work together. You know, I joke on pictures and she's prose, so I make frameworks because that's how helps me understand. Like if I can put it in a single page, I get it. If I don't, I don't get it yet and I need to keep mm. trying. And then I would send those over to Chris with some notes. And then that would sort of the paragraphs and the chapters would emerge from that. That's and, amazing. Um, it was fairly incredibly fast, I think. But to, to tell you what the book's actually about, it's called The Adaptation Advantage. And it's, it's really written for um, business leaders to use with their teams. We also think it probably has a secondary market with university students to think about their future, and any professional. In fact, I notice every time I go on Amazon, they have us in a different category because I think they think it could fit in a lot of places and mm. that, that's fine. So they're just trying that all out. So the first, it's three parts. First part is walking you through accelerated change, the sort of changes that are taking place and what they mean to you. And in some ways, how you've already, already adapted. The second part is about you, your individual identity, your own adaptation, how identity is formed, how um, societal or cultural and technological changes are reshaping how we define identity. And then the third piece is, if we're in a world of accelerated change with, with um, exponentially growing technological capabilities and a globally interdependent world, how do you lead? It isn't about just driving productivity anymore. It's about how do you inspire human potential? So it's about establishing trust and psychological safety and selecting teams of cognitive diversity and being comfortable being vulnerable and saying, I don't know. Everybody says they're, you know, learn through failure but really meaning that, what does that mean mm. as a leader? So that's, it's kind of the three parts of the book. And we, we were so fortunate to cross paths with so many different people who lent their expertise from theoretical neuroscientists to the executive director for human resilience at the Air Force. So we had a wide ranging group of experts who gave us some really interesting feedback throughout the book. Um, and, um, we're, we're real proud of it, and we're real proud of the people who came forward to help us make it a reality. Right. I love it. How are you going to measure the success of the book? Well, there's always, you know, book sales and lists that you get on reviews and all that. Um, for me, when I hear from folks, if I hear from folks who say, I have a different perspective on my career, or I'm leading my teams differently now, mm. or a university student saying, I'm really thinking differently about my future now. That will have the most meaning to me. That's success to me. It's, it's not the numbers, it's the impact. And I'm, I'm hoping we're gonna have that impact. Yeah, I, I absolutely concur. I mean, we can, you can be on all sorts of bestseller lists, but if you aren't really making a difference with what you're doing, um, what's the point? And um, I think we, we have an opportunity to really get some new ideas in front of some people and have them think differently about their work and their lives and their careers and mm. in ways that make them more resilient. And, um, and if we do that, I think we've, we've been successful. Yeah. And people often confuse resilience and grit with sort of just staying the course until you complete the original goal you had in mind. And we're really seeing resilience as nimbleness and agility and all the stuff people are, are, are um, really demonstrating right now. In fact, I've, I've said to a few people, it's eerily well-timed to this moment. We had no idea this virus was coming when we started this book, but it is what everybody needs right now is the advantage of the ability to adapt as individuals, as organizations, as leaders. Mm. Um, and we hope that it's helpful in this moment because we're suddenly thrown into this moment. We didn't know it, but it's eerily well-timed. You deserve it. You've had to adapt, right, to get the book to where it is. 
Mm-hmm. So you really are the proof in the pudding. Yeah, you say that, and, and I was, you know, because what do you do when, when you're in lockdown for a month and a half? You finally decide that it's time to tackle that file drawer. And so, you know, because it also means I can procrastinate from something else by cleaning <laughs> my desk. Um, but I started, I pulled out this folder that had been tucked pretty deeply into one of my drawers, and it was some of the original work that we'd done, the original um, uh, proposals. And, mm. you know, if I look at the very first proposal we did for this book, mm. and I look at the the book itself, the adaptation from what we originally conceived around Heather's dining room table four or five years ago to what is going to hopefully land on your dining room table in the next couple of weeks. Um, it's a really different book. It's a, I think it's a more sophisticated um, and contextualized book in a lot mm. of ways. A lot, largely driven by what's happened over the last five years. Um, so, yeah, it was adaptation in, in the content, adaptation in, in work styles. We went, we went from working and living relatively close to one another. I now am back on the West Coast and Heather's, you know, wherever Heather is at any given day. Um, <laughs> so it's, you know, learning how to work in a, a modality that is, um, you know, where are you today and what do we need to get done? Uh, there's adaptation in that. Um, mm. It just, it's, it's woven all through the book, I think, and, and, our, and our work together. So, so let's double click on that. Because I don't, I don't want to, to rush over how brilliant that is. Because at least my understanding of how people typically work on the things like this, you know, whether it be someone like a Jim Collins, I mean, he has a team of seven researchers that are in his space doing his stuff all day long. And now anybody that's thinking about writing a book or is maybe six months away from the final publication of the manuscript is going to have to adapt to this reality. So did you guys find any really brilliant cadence or way of thinking and kind of co-creating with each other Do you think others could get value from? Well, I think fear of missing deadlines is, is important. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's, that's a consistent... Um, I have to say on that front, we beat, I think, every deadline, which is why the book is over my right shoulder there when it shouldn't be out for another three weeks. Um, and we know each other well enough where uh, one of us could call the other and say what you just wrote wasn't good enough, uh, you're not making sense, take another stab at it. Um, and then we had a rhythm between, you know, sort of what would or- originate with me, go to Chris, come back to me. Like yeah. we had figured that kids out. Some of that comes from the last four or five years writing together. But um, there's no like magic platform or anything like that that we used. It wasn't any tool. I think it really was getting to know each other, right. um, trust, respect, knowing that we have a friendship as well. So if I said to Chris, this isn't good enough, or she said to me, your drawing makes absolutely no sense. Um, I had to know that she's my friend and she wouldn't say that unless she knew I was missing something and knew I was capable of more. Yeah. And that happened, I think, a couple times in there. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that we have great pride in co-authorship but not so much pride in authorship. And what I mean is that, um, you know, Heather could write something and I could look at it and go, mm, and take it apart and put it back together. And I could write something and she could look at it and mm. shake her head and take it apart, put something back into it. And together it became better. And I never you know, got a file back and said, you've, I loved that metaphor and you've taken it out and I can't believe you've messed with my prose. And Heather graciously accepted my rewrites and we just, you know, I think together we knew we were making the book better. Um, you know, that, so that in a collaboration, you know, I would say even extended out to, uh, we worked with a, a terrific developmental editor to whom we could say, you know, listen, we're, we're struggling with this essence of voice. How does, right. how is this coming off to you? Or he would write back and, and was not embracing, for example, our use of certain um, four-letter words. And so, you know, we kind of had to listen to his point of view about how audiences react to, to different language or mm. different um, metaphors, et cetera. And, and he helped us make the, the book better. And then we go through the next process with 
copy editors and fact checkers and, and the like. And, and on and on and on, we knew that if we could just be open to those, um, those inputs, that it would be a better product and we could be really proud of it. And I think that's true really for, you know, one or two names usually go on a cover of a book, but there are a lot more names that are involved in it. And many writers have said that in their acknowledgements, but the yeah. truth is this book is, is a collaboration as, as Heather said, among all of the people who gave us time and, and, you know, brilliant insights that we quote in the book, many who didn't get quoted. Um, and then, you know, a whole lot of people along the production path. And, and so, you know, if there's magic in any of that, it's opening your heart and your mind to knowing that that's, you know, not about, uh, it's not, none of those inputs are judgments about you or your ability or your thoughts or your perspective or your prose. They're really about how do we make this, this is an important project. Yeah. How do we make it the best it possibly can be? Yeah, I just, I think one of the things Chris is getting at, and it's something that we get at in the book, is that we're raised as humans to compete with each other. It's how our systems work. It's how we grade people, place people, rank people, review people. When in reality, our best work is collaborative. And it sort of takes a, it takes either the trust of a friendship or a long time working together or checking your ego, but we need to do a better job of making collaborators because we're making competitors at our apparel. I love that. So a couple of things. Number one, the work from home police, I think, are truly out. Um, I don't know if you've seen it on LinkedIn or Twitter, but some people have already given the manifesto on, on how to be curated from home, having only done it for 14 days. And um, I can't help but feel like it's just a bunch of noise. And people have optimized the tools over the end product. So it doesn't matter if you've got a beautiful CRM built out on Airtable or that Notion are now worth $2 billion. Have people really got better in two weeks at building relationships and creating trust and checking their ego at the door? And so I see a disconnection and attention in the digital world distracting people from what's really important. Notice your whole narrative there was not about the beautiful Word doc process that you had, but was really about your relationship as friends. So that's number one. And I'd like to know if you ever felt any tension to move away from that, because I had a curative on the show yesterday who said he will be gunning along, finally working on what he needs to. And he'll say, oh, I could make this neater in a different tool. I've got to revoke everything and go to it. And it's so funny to see authors have the same thing. Sometimes we are told that what have got you here won't get you there. And we end up removing the very thing that made us so successful. And then number two, I think it's difficult to work with friends. Um, I love that it's worked for you and I agree it makes the upside so sweet. But it's also really tricky because you have a relationship outside of the product. So, so how did you think through that? And I'm really asking for myself because I don't know if I do it very well. I think you have to take care of it. You know, it's, and you know, at the end of the day, recognizing that we wanted to create a great book, but we wanted to make sure we came out of it great friends. And I think being, um, acknowledging that up front, and, and, and I'll say this, you know, yes, on, on creative collaborations like a book, but, you know, on business as well. I have um, watched families get torn apart and friendships be broken because up front, there was not a strong acknowledgement of how are we going to work together? How do we push each other? What's okay? What's not okay? And, and I think that's just a really important, you know, laying of the ground rules. Um, I think, and, and, and Heather, I'll, I'll let you elaborate on this if you wish, but I think, you know, we've been working together, I think pretty productively um, for years. And then it became, you know, really, the proof in the in the in the process of, of writing a book, writing the book together, and the, the intensive amount of work over a very short period of time, that started for us um, on a very um, uh, profound note when Heather got very ill, and you know, in that context, you figure out what's important, you know, and it's not that I get to put in the last sentence and who. You know, did we include this or did you insult me because I didn't, you know, you didn't like my contribution? You, you realize that, you know, there's a, a leading with empathy and care um, 
is more important than than the result itself in so many ways. And if you can stay, keep that in your mind, um, I think you get past the, the pettiness of competition and ego and all the things that, that Heather was talking about a minute ago. Yeah, I was going to say we don't we didn't ever set any ground rules, but I think life gave me a a uh, card that told me <laughs> what was important. So just to quickly to see, see what happened, May twenty uh, third, I woke up in the morning, threw up blood. I've never had that happen before. I don't have any chronic illnesses or long term illnesses. I'm very lucky. Drove myself to the hospital and. Um, about 10 hours later, I was being medevaced from one ICU to the other. Um, I lost my entire blood supply. I had a rare, rare genetic condition called Dwellifoy's lesion. I had 19 blood transfusions, five procedures. My body went into shock twice. Um, my family had to fly in from all around the world. We didn't know if I was going to make it. And I did. And I'm just very, very, very grateful that I won the lottery in that way. And there's no long-term side effects or anything. And, and many people don't even know that happened because um, my wife would bring my computer in the hospital and bring a whiteboard because I was intubated and I couldn't speak. And I would be writing out things on the whiteboard for her to email people because I, I think we were even negotiating the contracts from my ICU room. So when we came out of that, I think Chris was um, mostly happy I didn't die and leave her to finish the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also yeah, it, it we, would not uh, be done had you died. <laughs> <laughs> We also just sort of figured, I mean, there's a lot of exhaustion after going through that. When you lose your blood supply, it's, it's really exhausting. And then I had also had, I think, about 20 talks lined up after that. So that really set the schedule for me. I've been, and Chris had just joined a startup as a COO at the same time. So we went from having relative, carefully, free, fairly flexible schedules that were predictable to major crisis, healthcare recovery, very fixed schedule. And that also helped us get really disciplined about um, how we collaborated. Wow. Um, um, I know you talked about an event like that, resetting the system. Do you feel like Corona, life under quarantine, is another version of that on a bigger scale? Yeah. Yeah. It's a global pause. It's a global pause. It's uh, teaching us what's important and what's possible simultaneously. Um, I and I don't say that lightly because I I know there's frontline workers, people who are economically insecure, going through a world of hurt, and it's not anything I would ever trade for this. But I'm an optimist, so I look at the upside of things. I think we're going to come out of this as a stronger society, um, a, a society of people with a greater sense of empathy and connectivity. Um, companies really forged of human beings, you know, seeking their greatest collective potential as opposed to just focusing on their competition. I think there'll be much more. Chris and I said a couple of years ago that companies are just um, culture and capacity. Culture is the setting that allows you to respond to an opportunity, and capacity is your ability to do so. It's kind of your why and your how. Mm -hmm. And uh, we see a lot more focus around that, a lot more focus with leaders on establishing that trust and potential in their teams, um, the speed at which people are pivoting. We see so many positives coming out of this that it may be, you know, my experience on a larger scale. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting thought, Cornelius. And what I think that I've recognized in, in the last couple of weeks is that while we may have profound and in some cases um, catastrophic shortages of surgical masks and toilet paper, we have discovered that we have an unending supply of empathy and, and that that is coming to play in our, our daily lives, our work lives, um, and as a result, making us better at what we do and better at who we are. And, and I think if, if that is all that comes out of this, um, we're, a lot, we're a lot better for, that, for the experience, as, as horrific as this experience has been. Mm. I also see, think that, at least among my generation, it's very easy to get wrapped up in in a lot of comparison. And uh, I, what I like about you too, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, is the book isn't really the goal, is it? Right? I mean, it's, it's one part of the journey. It's one vehicle for the message that should last a, li a lifetime in reality. And it's just another way in which you can hopefully incept the minds of 
of millions of people. Whereas I found and interacted actually with a lot of authors where the book is the goal. And so when it happens, it's kind of like, what next? The, the book is a means of scale. Um, you know, Heather is a very active public speaker. I work with dozens of startups. Um, we can only touch so many people. By putting a book into the market, it is a way to scale the thinking that we hope will catalyze real change. And, and it's a first step and only one tool. And we've got to continue speaking and consulting and advising and, and collaborating and, and evolving these ideas to help give individuals and, and business leaders tools so that they can then you know, have their impact. And, and so it's all about how do you find points of leverage and ways to scale because the changes that need to happen here now it, as we move to a digitized economy are immense. And they're not going to happen one one-on-one -on -one session at a time. They're going to have to happen by a lot of people really rethinking our, our institutions around learning and and employment and training and all of those aspects um, of even what a job means. Um, if we're going to be adaptive and be able to respond to this rapidly evolving future. So yeah, the book is a means of, of scale to a much bigger end, which is a you know, complete and total transformation of the economy. Just a little thing that we're working on. Yeah, it's also, it's, it's a unit of exhaust of our learning and our collaboration on one hand. Um, and as Chris just said, it's a, it's a vehicle we hope will have larger scale impact than we can individually have on our own. Yeah. With that said, you've been very generous with your time. I do want to ask, what's your craziest dream for the book? Do you ever have that moment in the shower or when you're walking your dog, you're thinking, oh, it'd be cool if that person sent me an email or a text and it somehow got into their hand. And have you trying to track that thought process and kind of where you think it comes from? Is there a certain sense of validation to being published and seeing your name, you know, in a Barnes and Noble? Well, Heather, you want to be on Rachel Maddow. I think that for you is the, the measure of success. If you and Rachel get to sit down and have a chat. Uh, yeah, I respect Rachel very much. I'm actually worried about her right now because it still looks like she's broadcasting out of a studio and I think she should be in a bubble. <laughs> you know, I want everyone to be protected. So no, I don't want to potentially infect anyone if or, or be infected by anyone. Um, no, I, I think that, you know, seeing the book in print is, Chris, I'm sorry I got my copy and you haven't got your copy, but you're getting yours today, right? That's the rumor. Okay. <laughs> well, when you get, I, I'm, I I'm like, a day ahead of you I or think so. she's just holding it out, dangling, and is taking my shipment and you try to derail it. You want to see it closer up? Here? No, go. don't. Oh, you're just taunting me now. <laughs> there we go. I have had this version for, for months where I've, I've wrapped our cover design around another book uh, so I, I can pretend that i have it you that's know, awesome it should be right here yeah yeah um no i i think you know it was uh, a long time coming so it's nice to to see it in print but i immediately think look at it and think i i hope we help people that's my goal i mean otherwise it's landfill yeah, you know, I see it as it's the start of a conversation or lots of conversations that we can have with people like you and 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 readers. You know, digitally, we're we're doing some some kind of webinar-like or, or virtual um, book discussions and things of that sort. But then I hope it seeds discussions of people among other people. Again, it becomes an yeah, without us. And and maybe I could just ask some some final questions on your actual creative process um, and how you both learn. Um, Heather, you, you said that Chris is prose and your pictures, but how do you guys in a field of noise continue to curate space to really reflect on those ideas, have those kind of uninterrupted periods of deep work? And then how do you bring something to life? Do you have a, like a daily practice of morning pages or journaling, meditation, long walks, listening to podcasts, phone calls with friends? Really interested to kind of understand that. And then... We, we can sign off. Um, 
I don't know, Chris, for you, but for me, um, it is consuming huge amounts of really disparate information from a lot of different sources. I mean, I have a lot of people on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter who send me articles or friends who send me articles and the ones I find on my own. So probably the first half of my day is just reading. Yep. And I find a lot of what I read is people telling you what happened. And that's important, but it's not as important as understanding why it happened and what might happen next and what it might mean for you. So the disparate, uh, this disparateness of the information is important to sort of connect the dots. And then I have such a variety of people I get to like pick up the phone or get on a Zoom and talk to from CEOs to board members to, you know, people from the army, from um, people in, in all sorts of spaces who I just call up and say, let me, I'm thinking about, you know, like when I was thinking about the three moral tasks, the different people I got call up and bounce that off of um, as I'm forming something. And then, you know, take a dog for a walk and that allows you the space for things to start to crystallize or, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's my friend. Then I start drawing pictures. And then once I have a picture, then it's, I understand it. Yeah. And Heather, just a question on that. When you're reading the information and Chris, feel free to answer this too. Are you using a pocket? Are you using a liner? Are you highlighting things? And, and where is that information going? Do you, do you have a kind of sophisticated perso- personal knowledge management system? I don't. Um, I put things, sometimes I email someone to Chris, like this is important for us to think about, or I'll put it, we have a couple flipboard channels where I kind of pocket things under different categories just so I can find them later. Yeah. I don't, I usually read almost everything digitally. Um, unless I listen I listen to a lot of audiobooks too yeah um, and then a mechanical pencil and an eight and a half by 11 piece of white paper I've tried iPad pros I've tried every digital form of technology I just need to start low tech I need to be able to erase I need to feel the tacticalness of it when I'm figuring something out superb Chris uh, I just wait until Heather tells me what to think and then I, I <laughs> try that um yeah, that and uh, you know, I'm a voracious consumer of, of news and, and opinion and, and you know, and I'm I'm trying to look at things in the context of you know current environment often. So you know, just a, a voracious news consumer. Um, often for me, it's I would say I I believe very strongly in the power of informed instinct. So for me, it's like taking in all kinds of data points and then. Um, having an opportunity to kind of just talk it out with someone. I have, I've often said, I don't really know what I think until I've said it out loud. And, and I realize that walking around talking to yourself can get you uh, in trouble. Um, but you know, having a conversation with, with Heather or with a colleague or with you know, a friend or with my wife that just is thinking out loud about all the inputs that have come in um, allow me to connect dots. Um, and I think that's, you know, I don't know if I have a superpower, it's the ability to connect disparate dots and make some sense of them. And, um, and that just re- is a process of absorbing lots of inputs and, um, and then finding opportunities to have conversation to begin to hammer out what that might really mean. I love it. And like we said earlier, you know, Robert Greene connecting dots is maybe the greatest form of power. And, uh, I think quarantine gives us more space for that, truly. So I'm excited to see what comes of this. I know that's been Paul Graham's tact on, on Twitter that both Facebook and Microsoft came from Harvard's reading days. And so I'm, I'm, I kind of take the positive note you share that there'll be some great innovation that comes of this. So um, thank you so much, guys. It's so fun to always talk to you. Um, amazing to see the journey. And I can't wait to get a copy of the book. I've just put in my Amazon pre-order. So the final thing I'll ask... I can't wait to get a copy of the book. <laughs> Me and you both, Chris. Or maybe I'll get it before you. Um, but the final thing I always like to ask is, how can we support you during life under quarantine? Where can we follow along uh, on your personal journeys and also learn more about the Adaptation Advantage? Well, um, we have a website, The Adaptation Advantage. I've got a website, heathermcgowan.com. Yours is cshipley.com. We're both on LinkedIn, we're both on Twitter, we're not hard to find, and we're very open to conversation, so. Yeah, you know, I think that that for both of us, and I won't speak for Heather, you know, conversation is is the currency I prefer to work in, and so um, I'm always open to 
you find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, the website, and, and let's talk. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, guys. Hope you have a lovely, lovely weekend and uh, enjoy those Zoom happy hours. Hey, hey today's, today's um, happy hour challenge. Reach deep into your liquor cabinet or, or however that is defined for you. Pull out a random bo- bottle and then create a cocktail around whatever you find. I love it. I'll let you know what I come up with. All right. That's what uh, I want to hear. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Heather. All right. Take care.